Hi, Smarties. This is Rachel, and we have a big announcement. We know we've hinted at it. You have asked us about it, and we are excited to announce that we are bringing back Learn Smarter Pro. Learn Smarter Pro is our group coaching program for professionals who are either in the early stages or considering building a private practice to work with students with different learners. You are an awesome candidate for Learn Smarter Pro if you seek a community of like-minded professionals, if you want to develop the skills and habits of a successful entrepreneur, want coaching to help you manage difficult cases and scenarios, and you want exclusive behind-the-scenes business trainings that will create more free time, increase your productivity, and generate more profit for you and your family. Some of the trainings that we offer, and it may change based off the group, is why your client onboarding process really matters, client communication, networking, and really fabulous time-saving tools. We were honored to run Learn Smarter Pro over the summer, and we have decided to launch again and open the doors to applications, which are currently available if you email us at rachelandstaff at learnsmarterpodcast.com. Alternatively, you can go to our website, Learn Smarter Podcast, and click on Learn Smarter Pro and join our waitlist. We will be starting Learn Smarter Pro in February of 2021, and we are excited to chat with you and welcome you in and get to know you and your businesses a little bit better. Today, we want to wish everybody a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving and an opportunity to revisit one of the fabulous conversations we had very early on in the podcast with ADHD expert, Dr. Thomas Brown. In this episode, Dr. Brown teaches all of us how he defines ADHD, and he's the guy who defines it, shares several stories that help us all to understand ADHD and how it works and how we all struggle with executive functioning at different moments. He also further highlights that ADHD is not a struggle of willpower, but rather a disorder of motivation. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 50 of Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. I'm Rachel Kapp. And I'm Stephanie Pitts. And today we are welcoming Dr. Thomas Brown to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Dr. Brown. We're excited to have you on the podcast today. We really are. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Glad to be here. <laughs> Super exciting. So I was thinking... That it would be great to just, in your own words, tell the people (laughs) (laughs) who don't know you, maybe, what you do and who you do it for. Okay. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I completed my PhD in clinical psychology at Yale and then was asked to join the faculty there. And so I was on the clinical faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at Yale Medical School for over 20 years while I was also running a private specialty clinic for ADHD. And five years ago, my wife died, and I have two grown kids and two grandkids all out in L.A., and I figured it was time for me to move. So I resigned from Yale and closed my clinic there, came out here, bought a house not far from where my grandkids live, and opened my new clinic in Manhattan Beach, California, where I see young children, teenagers, and adults with ADHD and related problems. It has to be related problems because very rarely do you see just plain ADHD. Often the people are coming because they've had other difficulties, and some are people who come from the neighborhood, and some are people from other parts of the United States, and some are international. I've published five books on ADHD and 30 papers in professional peer-reviewed journals, so Sometimes people have read some of my stuff and decide they'd like to come in and get some more specialized evaluation and treatment. That's what I do. We're so happy to have you in the South Bay. And I think for those of you that don't know Dr. Brown, the introduction of you being really the world's expert on ADHD, I feel like, and having you as a resource for some of these families, especially in Los Angeles is 
fantastic. So welcome. Thank you. I'm very <laughs> happy to be here. I like being near my family and I don't mind being able to uh, go to work on winter mornings without having to scrape ice off my windshield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to do that either. <laughs> You're talking to two California girls who I've never experienced that. Steph, have you ever experienced that? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's a choice. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah. So the overall goal of us inviting you on the podcast, and if our listeners can't tell, this is a get for us. Right. <laughs> yes. Yay. The overall goal is for us to help families kind of normalize the ADHD experience. And so what would you say to families who have a child or a learner who's newly diagnosed, or we have listeners whose kids have long been diagnosed, but they feel confused and scared and they're still kind of in the early stages of accepting it. Well, usually when I'm talking with families and patients about ADHD, one of the things I say is, look, most people have heard the term ADD or ADHD. It's been around a long time. This was recognized for the first time in the medical literature back in 1902. But from 1902 until 1980, it was all about little boys who couldn't sit still, wouldn't shut up, or driving everybody nuts. And it wasn't until 1980 that they put the term attention deficit into the name of the disorder. Hmm. And since then, we've learned a lot more. And the main thing, I think, is that we've learned that it's not just a behavior problem. In fact, for some people, it's not a behavior problem at all. Right. The official diagnostic manual of the American Psychiatric Association lists symptoms of inattention and symptoms of being hyperactive and uh, impulsive as three types of problems that people have with ADHD, but the more recent research on it has led us to think about this as a name, that ADD or ADHD, I use the two terms interchangeably, is a name for a developmental impairment of the brain's self-management system, its executive functions. And those are things which you know, I think most people can understand the language of it. There's nothing particularly technical about it. The model that we work with has six different parts to it. And let me tell you, before I even go any further with this, all the things that are problems with ADD are things everybody has trouble with sometimes. It's just people with ADD have a lot more trouble with it. So it's, it's not as though this is some really oddball thing. It's a matter of, of having a little more of a problem with some things that everybody has trouble with sometimes. Mm -hmm. But one of the parts of it is what we call activation. It's getting organized and getting started. Uh, and get moving on doing one's work. Now, the work is different if you're a 60-year-old in first grade versus a 10-year-old in fourth or fifth grade or 16-year-old as a sophomore in high school or a college student or an adult. But the fact is, regardless of where you are, you still have to organize your day, you know, and you have to be able to prioritize the things. that. Uh, let me give you an example. You know, an attorney that I saw one time came in. He said, you know, all my life I've had trouble getting started on my work when I have to work by myself. He said, I have no trouble in talking with clients. I'm working with other lawyers or working with the secretaries. But when I go into my office and shut the door and I have paperwork to do, I don't get anything done. He said, it's so frustrating because a couple of times a week, I'll set aside several hours of paperwork that I want to get done. I need to get it done. I'm not going to be able to get paid until I get it done. I'm in my office. I've got all this stuff right in front of me. And I don't touch it. I end up turning on the computer and I'll check my emails. Then I'll send out notes to a few people. And I'll check a couple of news sites and see what's going on in the world. And then mysteriously, this video game appears on my screen. I'll be doing that for the next two or three hours. <laughs> I go home at the end of the day. I haven't got my work done. Have a bite to eat. Watch a little TV. And then about 10 o'clock at night, it dawns on me. Oh, my God, I've got this report. I've got to get into the office at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. If I don't get that thing in, I'm going to be in very serious trouble at work tomorrow. And he said, at that point, I've got no problem. I can get on my home computer and work very efficiently from 10 o'clock at night till 3 in the morning and produce a very good report, but the hell will we live? Yeah. Now, that's an example of a lawyer, but there are many kids in elementary school and in high school and many adults in college and in other places who face very similar problems where they've got stuff they need to do and they have a hard time getting organized and figuring out which things to do first. 
and doing the things that need to be done first. And that's one piece of ADHD, getting organized and getting started. I think just listening to you and your knowledge and just how you approach it and how you make it real is exactly why we are so grateful to have you. Can I make a special request, Dr. Brown? Sure, go ahead. I love your cookie story. <laughs> we okay. talk about the cookie stories between Steph and I, so make sure to throw that in at some point. Okay, I, I should be able to do that. Because I was on a flight recently and I had a cookie and I thought of you when I had the cookie. <laughs> Very good. Did you have one or two, Steph? Just one. Okay. 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 Uh, the second cluster on this model is being able to focus and uh, sustain attention to a task. And by focus, we're not talking about holding up a camera and focusing on the picture. But rather, it's more like focus on your driving. Because when you're driving, uh, you're not just gluing your eyes to the bumper of the car in front of you. You're watching what they're doing. But on top of that, you're also noticing that the stoplight down the street is turning from green to red. you got to get your foot off the accelerator and onto the brake. You also have a situation where you've got to, to be able to watch this truck that's backing out of the driveway so you slow down and don't hit them. A few pedestrians running across the street. Somebody's coming up too fast on you. And you've got to be able to keep in mind those various things using your working memory. And ignore the stuff that's not that important and focus on the things that are important, keeping those in mind. And at the same time, when we're driving, you might also be thinking about what you're going to pick up when you get to the grocery store. And it's using working memory, focusing, shifting focus from one thing to the other in order to safely drive the car. That's a second piece of the model we use for understanding ADHD. A third one is regulating alertness and keeping up effort and finishing and processing speed. Uh, Many people with ADHD have trouble with sleep. They have trouble being awake when they need to be awake and asleep when they need to be asleep. And often people will say, you know, I often stay up a lot later and I really want to or should because I found if I try to go to bed before I'm really, really tired, I can't shut my head off. I just keep thinking of stuff, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and then when I do fall asleep, uh, and tired enough to do it, I sleep like a dead person. I have a hard time resurrecting myself in the morning. Unless there's somebody there to drag me out of bed, I'm very likely to sleep right through what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, during the day, they're usually okay if they're on their feet moving around or talking a lot, but they have to sit still for very long to listen or to read or do paperwork. Then the eyelids start getting kind of heavy. And so that's one of the things that's involved. But there's also a matter of keeping up the effort. I had a college kid one time who was on the track team for his school. He's a runner. He said, my mind's a great sprinter, but it's a lousy distance runner. He said, if the task I'm trying to do is something you can do one quick chunk and you go all out for it and then you're done with it, I'm fine. But if it's something where you can't do it in one quick chunk, it's a longer-term project, you have to keep chipping away at it day after day. He said, that I have a lot more trouble with. And I tend to either hurry up, slap dash, get the thing done, let's not worry too much about quality control, or why don't I set this aside and wait until it becomes more of an emergency. Mm. The third thing, it's not true for every person who has ADHD, but many people with ADHD complain that they really have a slow processing speed, that when they have to write something, whether it's a fourth grade book report or something for social studies, or a, a high school or a college student having to write a term paper, or an adult writing a report in their job, Often they'll have good ideas about what to write, but it takes them half a forever to get the sentences and paragraphs out on the page. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that we put together under the term effort. Being able to to manage the alertness and sustain the effort and, and being able to operate slow down when you need to slow down and speed up when you need to speed up. Mm-hmm. The fourth cluster uh, in the model of ADHD that we work with is managing frustration and modulating emotions. Now, the official diagnostic criteria have nothing in there about managing emotions, but the fact is any of us who work with people who have ADHD or who live with them know very well that that's a big issue. Yes. That sometimes they'll get extremely angry about little stuff that most people wouldn't even think about as important. And usually it doesn't last that long, but other times their feelings will get hurt Somebody says something or does something that hurts their feelings and they have a hard time letting go of it. Sometimes 
they get caught up in feeling of something they want, they want to do or something they want to get or something they want to buy. And that's all they could think about. They just become relentless and pushing everybody to be able to do it until they either get it or hit a brick wall. And other people worry so much that they have all these what ifs. Mm -hmm. What if this happens or what if that happens? And the problem then is they begin thinking about it. And pretty soon it's not just they're thinking about it. It's almost like they're living it. And it gets very difficult for a lot of folks with ADHD to manage those, the frustration that they have sometimes, often, and manage these emotions. It's not the same thing for everybody. It's not like everybody has all these things. Mm -hmm. But just managing emotions and modulating them is a big issue. Another thing that's problematic is that they have difficulty with memory. If you ask people who have ADD, how's your memory? Often they'll say, oh, I've got the best memory in my family. I can remember stuff nobody else can remember. They'll give you some example about some movie they had seen years ago, and they can tell you every detail, the entire storyline of the movie they saw years ago, and they've only seen it once. And somebody else might say, oh, yeah, I went to the Super Bowl two years ago. I can still describe for you almost every play they ran during that game. While someone else might say, oh, I have 450 songs in my head, all the music, all the lyrics, all the verses. But even though they might be really good about remembering things like that from a long time ago, if you ask them about something that happened just a couple of minutes ago or yesterday, often they can't tell you. The problem with memory, with ADD, it's not usually long-term storage memory. It's short-term working memory. It's what you depend on when you have to hold one thing in your head while you're doing something else. That's where the problem is. It's the kind of thing that you go in the other room and get something, and you're standing there scratching your head wondering what the hell you came in here for. Or you're working on a project. You go downstairs, get something you need for the project, see something else that's interesting, something else that needs doing. Soon you're up your elbows in project number two, and having totally forgotten you're in the middle of project number one upstairs, it was kind of important to get it done. Students complain, they'd be in class. Teacher asks a question, they raise their hand, they've got a good answer for it. Teacher calls on somebody else first. You have to wait while that other kid says her shtick. Teacher comes back and says, yeah, what were you going to say? It's like totally clueless. Not like I've forgotten what I was going to say, but what was the question again? Or they'll read something, they'll understand it perfectly well at the moment that they read it. And then they read a couple more paragraphs and stop for a second, realize their eyes have gone over every word. They understood every bit of it as they were reading it, and now they haven't got the foggiest idea what they just read. So they've got to go back and read it again. Or you're getting ready to go someplace. You think of five things you need to take with you. Half an hour later, you're walking out the door. You got one of them. Can't remember the other four to save your life. It's where you have to hold one thing in mind while doing something else. That's the, the kind of memory problem that we see often with people with ADHD. And then the sixth and final cluster has to do with monitoring and self-regulating action. It's being able to slow down when you need to slow down and speed up when you need to speed up. It's being able to keep an eye on, on how people are reacting to what you're saying and what you're doing. So if they look puzzled or if they're getting annoyed or if they're getting impatient, you can ask them about that and work it out. It's not just about being hyperactive. Sometimes it's that, but sometimes it's other kinds of difficulty. But all of these are things everybody has some problem with. Yes. Everybody has, has this sort of thing. Some, But people with ADHD tend to have difficulty with most of these things. Now, for some, one is a bigger problem than another. But most of them, this is a cluster of things that often go together. So one of the things that Steph and I had talked about before having you on the podcast is we wanted to have a conversation with you that helped families move towards understanding and acceptance of the diagnosis. But I actually think that you reiterating a couple of times in that whole speech about everybody has problems with this sometimes Yeah, can help because a lot of times we get these extremely high functioning families coming into the practice and the kid really is an outlier in the family and the parents can't relate. And so this was, I think a really helpful reminder for me that yes, there are moments when you can relate. It's just not to the intensity or the degree that your child is experiencing it. Right. I think another thing that's important to talk about with families is that this is not something that happens because the person wants to have it. Yeah. It's a, a problem which is fundamentally inherited. Yes. And we've got good evidence of that. Out of every four people diagnosed with ADHD, one of them's got a mom or dad who's got it, whether they know it or not, because in the old days, we were never good at diagnosing this, and even today, it gets missed a lot. And the other three, if they don't have a parent who has it, Usually there's going to be a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt or a cousin or a brother or sister, somebody who's had some difficulties like this. But keep in mind, it's, it's not an all or nothing deal like pregnancy. If you are pregnant or you're not pregnant and there's nothing in between, it's more like depression. 
where everybody gets bummed out once in a while, just because somebody's unhappy for a couple of days, does not mean we'll diagnose them as clinically depressed. It's only when the depressive symptoms are persistent and making a lot of trouble for me, say, yep, that's the depression. We ought to do something about it. Hmm. It's also important to note that this isn't going to happen all the time. So there could be moments where a parent asks a child to do something and they're able to do it this week Mm -hmm. and next week, the same situation, they're not able to. And I think that is what comes up with parents. It's very frustrating, but it's frustrating for the child too. For sure. Yeah, because in that situation... It makes it look like this is a problem of willpower. Yes. If you really wanted to do it, why don't you do it now? You know, and that's true whether you're talking about somebody waiting to get around to doing something or something that they just are not getting into that they should. Yeah. The fact is that, that this is not something that is willpower. It's part of the dynamics of the chemistry of the brain. It's an inherited problem. And it's something that, that hits on some things, but not on others. I've seen thousands of people with ADHD, little kids, teenagers, and adults. Every one of them has a few things they can do where they have no trouble paying attention. And if you watch them when they're doing those things, you'd swear they don't have a problem. Here's an example. One of my favorite examples of, of this is a 16-year-old kid I saw one time, and he was the goaltender for his school's ice hockey team. And it just happened that his parents were bringing him in to see me the day after the team had just won the state championship in ice hockey. So at the beginning, they're bragging a little bit about how great he was as a, as a goalie. And apparently, he was an extraordinary goalie. They said when he was in the net playing hockey, he missed nothing. He knew where that puck was every second of a fast game, totally on top of it. Kind of goalie every team wants. Smart kid, tested way high up in the superior range, wanted to get good grades, was hoping to go to medical school, but he was always in trouble with his teachers. And what they'd say to him is, you know, once in a while, you'll say something that shows how smart you are. We'll be talking about something. You'll come in with some comment that's really very perceptive. It's impressive. But most of the time, you're out to lunch. You're looking out the window. You're staring at the ceiling. You look like you're half asleep. Half the time, you don't even know what page we're on. And the question I kept asking them was, if you can pay attention so well when you're playing hockey, how come you can't pay attention to sitting in class? Or here's another example. A lot of times, parents will bring in kids for us to see They'll say, you know, the teacher says this kid can't pay attention for more than five minutes. We know that's not true. We've watched her play video games. Yeah. And she can sit and play the video games for three hours at a time and not move. The teacher says she's easily distracted. That's nonsense. She's playing those games. She is locked on that screen like a laser. And the only way you're going to get her attention is to jump in her face or turn off the TV. So, again, it's like, you do it here. Why can't you do it there? Now, it's not always sports or video games. There's some people with ADD, they're not good at that stuff. They might be into art. And they're sketching and drawing and really getting into it for hours at a time. Somebody else? When they're little, they're creating engineering marvels with Lego blocks. And then when they're older, they're taking car engines apart and putting them back together or designing computer networks. But everybody I've ever seen who has ADD has a few things they can do where they have no trouble paying attention, even though on almost everything else, they've got a lot of trouble paying attention. If you ask them, I say, what's with this? How come you can do it here and you can't do it here, here, and here? Usually what they'll say is, it's easy. If it's something I'm interested in, I can pay attention. If not, I can't. And most people hear that and they say, yeah, right, congratulations, that's true for anybody. Anybody's going to pay attention better for something they're interested in than for something they're not, which is true. But here's the difference. People who don't have ADD, if they've got something they've got to do and they know they've got to do it, it's important, they usually make themselves pay attention, even if it's pretty boring, just because they know they got to do it. People with ADD, it's incredibly difficult for them to be able to make themselves pay attention Unless the task is something that's really interesting to them, not because somebody said, hey, you ought to be interested in this because it's going to improve your grade point average, but just because it is more interesting to them for whatever reasons. Or if they feel they have a gun to their head that something that they think of as very unpleasant is going to be happening very fast if they don't take care of this right here, right now. Under those two conditions, no problem. But under any other conditions, it's kind of difficult. So it makes it appear that this is a problem with willpower. You can do it here. Why can't you do it there? When in fact, it's not. It's a problem with the dynamics of the chemistry of the brain. That's really just not a problem with willpower. That's mm-hmm. just, I'm going to keep saying that. <laughs> it does look like it's a problem with willpower because you can do it here and not there. It does. It- but it is a problem of, you know, when there's something that we're facing that we're really interested in, and it may not be the things that people think we should be interested in, but it's something that we're really interested in. We're going to find the interest there, and we're going to be motivated to do it. 
And then if there's something that, you know, maybe we're not that interested in it, but we just know very well that if I don't take care of this right here, right now, something that I do not want to see happen is going to happen. Now, you know, some parents would say, well, your grades are not going to look very good further down the road, but that's further down the road. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of whether it's going to be embarrassing to me or it's going to cost me in some way that I do not want to pay. Yeah. That's the kind of thing. And a lot of that depends on where you are and what the circumstances are, too. You know, an example that, that I use often to talk about that is a, a trip my wife and I were taking across the Atlantic. And I was going over to give some lectures in Europe. And we were flying American Airlines, and they often will bake cookies in the galley of, of the airplane during mid-flight. And then they'll distribute them to the people who are in business class and first class. It sucks for the people who are in the back of the plane because they don't get any cookies. They can smell them, but they don't get them. <laughs> uh, and so I was in mid-flight, and I was feeling kind of hungry, and I smelled the cookies. And, oh, that's good. I, I, I like those chocolate chip cookies. But then I was hesitant about it because I had been on a diet, and I've, I'd lost a few pounds and, and wanted to keep up that progress. And on top of that, my wife was helping me with that. She was sort of the food police for me. And she'd do it pretty nicely. She said, do you really need that? Or you've been doing so well recently. And I thought, well, damn, you know, I, I guess I'm just going to have to say no thanks on the, on the cookie. And, and part of it was that I really did want to just stick to my diet and, and make some further progress with it. I was proud of what I had done so far. And then I just glanced to my side and I noticed my wife was asleep. And that changed things quite a bit. <laughs> because now I, I felt even stronger that I really wanted to have that cookie. And, and I wasn't going to have to listen to her tell me I shouldn't be having it or that I was doing well recently. And I'm sort of struggling back and forth. And then meanwhile, the flight attendant puts a plate out in front of me and says, would you like to have a cookie? And I said, well, yeah, thank you. I, I would. And can you give me another one for my wife who's asleep? So they, she gave me the two cookies, and I, of course, ate both of them quickly and then uh, brushed <laughs> back to the, the galley with the crumbs on the cookie the plate evidence. to dispose of the evidence <laughs> and didn't bother my wife with that information until after we had landed, at which time we, we had a good laugh about it. But the point of this, of course, is that I had mixed feelings, that I wanted to have that cookie because it smelled good and I knew it would taste good. I'd had them before. And at the same time, I didn't want to have the cookie because I was proud of the fact that I'd lost a little weight and I wanted to keep that going. And on top of that, I didn't want to have to listen to my wife complain to me about it. Both things were true. But who you're with and what you're doing can make a big difference. And I think there are many times when uh, all of us have you know, feelings of, yeah, I, I probably should do that homework tonight. Uh, it's going to be important to get that done. But on top of that, I've got some friends who are getting together, and I, I really prefer to be with them. There are many ways in which this happens to all of us, I think, where you get caught between wanting to do and not wanting to do something. And that's just the way it is for all of us. And who you're with makes a big difference. <laughs> it really does. And I thought about that cookie. I remember when I was in high school. The math teacher wanted us taking the state testing in the room that we had math in. And it's because the research showed that when students were primed for the type of experience that they were going to have in that room, they tended to do better. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also true that students do better when they're coming to session with us, Steph. Mm -hmm. They're primed. They know what's going to happen during that session and they're prepared. And in the space, this whole experience that you're describing of it matters where you are and when you are there. Mm -hmm. We see that. We see the benefits of that. Well, and there's also added pressure that if they know their parents are paying to have you work with their kid and you report, hey, look, the kid was on strike during the course of that time, the kid's going to hear about it. I don't always have that tool in my kit, but I'm always bringing it up because I'm well aware that there's a financial commitment for the parents. Well, yeah, but you don't have to mention it. The kids know that that's something that, you know, if their parents get a report that they have not been doing well in what they're paying for, that it's going to make a problem for them. But that's not the only thing. It's clear, for example, with people with ADHD, many times they'll report that they have a hard time getting started and staying on a task in order to finish it if they have to do it by themselves. 
However, if there's somebody else around, even if that person is not saying a word about what they're doing, might be sitting there reading a book or a magazine, just having someone else there sometimes can make a big difference and help to reinforce the part of them that wants to do it, even though there's another part that says, I'd really rather be doing something else right now. It's why Steph and I set aside time for this podcast to write for it, to create our content, to create our episodes. We're not necessarily writing in the same episode at the same time, Mm -hmm. but we're doing this, this kind of virtual experience. So even if Steph isn't sitting right next to me, the task is still getting done and her task is still getting done. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I have a couple of parents who don't want their children to study with their friends or go to study sessions with, you know, a group of people or whatever. And I, I think that there's this stigma that everyone's just going to goof off. And while I do think some kids goof off, it has to be the right type of scenario and the right kid. But a lot of kids do really well when they're held accountable and they can do it in groups and they learn from each other. So I think I've broken that down for a couple of parents recently that I think it would be a really good idea to let them do that because the parents just don't want, you know, they should sit in their room and study for hours. They've had experiences seeing their kids just mess around when they've got other people with them. However, I can also tell you, it depends on the kid and partly on how old the kid is and, and partly how motivated the kid is. And it depends a lot on who else they're going to be studying with. Over the 20-some years that I was teaching at Yale and running my clinic there, I had a lot of, of college students and uh, graduate students who were coming to see me. And it was very common among those Yale students to study for exams and do the work of studying in groups of two, three, four people. And what they would do was to select other students where they knew they were pretty smart and that they really cared about their work. You didn't want to get somebody who was just messing around and didn't really care. Right. Uh, And then what they would do, for example, if there was a quiz or a test coming up and it was going to say cover four chapters, then they they would say that all of us have to read all four chapters, but each one of us is going to be specifically responsible for one of those four chapters and will ask questions of the rest of us. And then we can argue over whether or not the answers that we were talking about make sense or whether somebody will say, oh, yeah, but you forgot that the teacher had said something more about this. And as long as everybody's doing their share, that can be a much better way of learning than simply staring and looking at the book. Because it's easy to to get very bored with that. And also, when you're explaining something to someone else and listening to somebody else explain, you know, getting ready to criticize the way they're doing it, uh, that's a much more active process than this passive thing of just sliding your eyes over each line of the text. I had a college kid one time who came in and he said, you know, it's really different for me when I'm reading something that I'm really interested in. I don't have any trouble really getting into it. But when I'm reading something that's been assigned that I really don't have much interest in, it's like I'm licking the words and I'm not chewing them. Yes. I love that. Oh. (laughs) I love that so much. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That's great. During that little speech, I'm sitting here thinking and saying, okay, Dr. Brown is telling us chunking is good. Dr. Brown is telling us active studying is good. But I love that metaphor because, look, there's a lot of parent coaching that goes on with what we do and letting their kids do things in a way that doesn't look like how they think it should. So one of Yeah, the- or how they did it themselves. And so one of those things that this really rises to the top is with studying because parents think that studying is about how much time their student is spending on that particular. I want them doing two hours of studying on this subject a night mm-hmm. and they'll quantify it by time, but that doesn't make any sense for a student. It's about benefit. It's about what you're yielding from it and what you're getting out of it. It doesn't address the quality of the engagement with the text. Exactly. So I love that you're asking your kid to lick the words, not chew them. I'm going to say that. I'm going to steal it. I literally had this conversation with a parent recently, and this is a kid who is very motivated, picks very motivated friends, does really well, knows this about herself, and mom felt a little unsure 
And I said, let's try it. Let's give it a semester of her doing this. And if it doesn't work, then we can reevaluate. But let's let her try instead of putting it out there that, no, you're just going to goof off and you're not going to get anything done and your grades are going to plummet. She was super happy to teach her friends. They chunked it by teaching each other and she loved it. She thought it was great. Mm -hmm. And it's inherently social. So you're getting that need met as well. Right. For sure. Yeah. Dr. Brown, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you've noticed the relationship between motivation and ADHD is, because we talk about what we notice about all our kids, whether they have ADHD or a different learning issue about this motivation piece, because it matters. So what have you noticed about it? Well, sure it does. And motivation is essentially, that's the whole thing about executive function. Mm-hmm. One of the people who's contributed a lot in this field is a sentence. She said, you know, executive function is the functions that address the question of will you do it? And if you are going to do it, when and how? Mm-hmm. You know, it gets to the motivation is, are you going to do it? Mm-hmm. It's a starting point. And then the when are you going to do it? You plan to do it further down the road, but not now. Or is it something that you're going to get started on right now? And then how are you going to do it? That gets to the organization piece. And that's what's so hard. Those things all run together. But I think that ADHD is very much a disorder of motivation. Hmm. And part of that has to do with issues around working memory, that people with ADHD, one of the big troubles they have is keeping multiple things in mind at the same time. And that very often the focus is on very much in the moment. I don't feel like doing it now. And it's difficult for them to think about the fact, well, you're also not going to be feeling very good about what's going to happen if you don't get this done now. You know, you reap the the harvest that that comes from putting it off. Yeah. And most kids forget about it. We talk about it all the time, even in our conversation stuff. I'll say something like, this is a problem for future Rachel. Yeah. Because I sometimes need help prioritizing what is a right now problem versus what is a what can be a future problem. Yeah. So I'll say to my students, do something today that future stuff will be grateful past stuff did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Dr. Brown likes it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember recently you told me to do that when it was, I think I had 15 minutes to eat something and you said, Mm -hmm. do something right now that future stuff will be really relieved that you did. And I did that and it was, it was great. You forgot to do it for yourself, but (laughs) I can't take you, but forget to do it for me. Yes. Dr. Brown, in your experience, what traits in a family help them respond effectively to the diagnosis once they get it? I think one is to realize that that their son or daughter is not having this problem because they want it. Mm -hmm. So not blaming. It gets into recognizing that this is a syndrome. It's a cluster of difficulties that tend to go together, these executive functions. And that it runs in families. And in fact, most parents, if they'll be honest about it, will recognize that some of these same things probably they themselves have struggled with and or are struggling with. Absolutely. In different settings. And so one of the things that I've often said, particularly to very successful parents, is that we all have a tendency to try to talk to our kids, our sons and daughters, about our successes and how it's important and how we've worked hard to have our successes and so forth. But often a parent, particularly a parent who's been very successful, can be doing more of a favor to their son or daughter in telling about some of their failures, some of the times when they didn't study for a test or Mm -hmm. some essay that they needed to write and the frustration or the embarrassment about it or getting a poor grade. So that they get the sense that you can have a struggle with your work and make bad decisions sometimes about what you're going to do and not going to do. But that's part of a much bigger process. And it doesn't mean that that's the way it's always going to be. And the fact that you're successful enough to be able to be where you are does not mean that you're 100 percent 
effective in the way you operate all the time, that even in your current experience, it's likely that there are times when you mess up too. And I think sometimes we like to tell our kids about how we've conquered all these challenges. And sometimes our kids are really good at pointing out to us our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> they can tell us far better than anybody else can what, uh, you know, what's not the a good thing about us. But in spite of the fact that they can sometimes tear us down quite effectively, underneath that, most kids idealize their parents and sometimes believe that there's no way that they're ever going to be able to be successful in the way their parents have. Right. That one of the things that parents can do, a gift that you can give to your kids is once in a while, tell them about the fact that you've been in the same boat they've been in, that you have struggled with with these things too, and it's not like you've been perfect all the time. That's one thing. And, and also that they need to realize that their kids did not sign up for ADHD any more than their parents did or their grandparents or their uncles or their aunts have done. Uh, it's inherited. And some people get asthma. Yeah. Some people need to wear glasses. Some people just had misfortunes. Uh, the cards that they've been dealt are not the cards you'd like to have. But the fact is, you know, we've got to work with the hands we're dealt. That attitude is, is important. And parents need to understand that you know, for one thing, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Mm-hmm. You know, that if you're constantly criticizing a kid, the effect of that is to either get them feeling worse about themselves or possibly get them to revolt and do even less. So here's a sentence I never thought I'd say to you, Dr. Brown. Are you familiar with Spanx? Are you talking about the the clothing, the Spanx? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. So, so the reason yes. I'm bringing that up, because Sarah Blakely is the founder of Spanx, and one of the things that she talks about is that in her house, when she was growing up, it was a perfectly normal question for her dad to say to her, what was one thing you failed at today? And by doing that, he normalized failure for her, told her he was reinforcing that trying and failing is acceptable. And it essentially guided her to a career of entrepreneurship because she was able to know that there's going to be a lot of dead ends, but she was going to be resilient. What I was waiting for was whether he was going to be discussing her failures as something where he's shaking his finger and scolding her for them. Not at all. Or saying, look, you failed at that today, and I failed at something else I was trying to do today. And that's the way it is. Some days go that way. That's exactly the message she was sending. And back in the day when I used to teach preschool, I was dealing with a lot of these very high achieving parents whose perfectionism was getting passed on to their children to such at four years old, to such an extent that kids would avoid doing activities that they thought they weren't going to be good at. They were reluctant to try things that were new and that they didn't have experience with because they weren't going to immediately likely be fantastic at it at four years old. And this is a story I've told on the podcast before. I've had to coach parents when I was teaching preschool. You need to fail on purpose in front of your kid. Yep. I've told people in the practice that since I've been doing educational therapy to actually fail. And if they are feeling like this is a very hard thing, let's make it up so that it's not actually something that they fail at if they can't handle it. Yeah. I said to a parent, you're going to have to make a mistake. And you're going to have to model how you respond to it. And you're going to have to do a lot of talking out loud. So your four-year-old can hear it. And she looked at me and she was like, Rachel, I don't make mistakes. <laughs> and I go, I know you don't. I Because I knew who I was talking to, of course. I know you don't, but make that the goal. So make the yeah. achievement yeah. faking a mistake. Yeah. You're still doing what is important to you. But the goal <laughs> is to purposefully exactly. stumble in front of your kids. Yeah. But that attitude of I don't make mistakes is in itself a big problem. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, this is somewhat related to another issue that I often have to deal with, and that is there are many parents who are unhappy about the prospect of having their kids take medicine for their ADHD. Yes. And part of it is very understandable that they worry about the, the medicine is going to have bad side effects. Mm-hmm. Or that it might mean, you know, I've had many parents say, well, if my kid starts taking medicine now at age 10 or age 15 to help them focus, 
you know, they're probably going to get into taking other kinds of drugs as a result of that. They've become familiar with that strategy. And one of the things I tell them is, look, you've got the research backwards. The fact is that we have pretty good evidence that says if you show me a kid who has ADHD, even five years old or eight years old, carefully diagnosed with ADHD, I can tell you statistically that kid has doubled the risk of having a drug or alcohol problem that rises to the level of diagnosis at some point in his or her life if they are not treated with medicine. I didn't know that. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to protect them because all we're talking about here are risk factors. But it is the case that during childhood and adolescence with ADHD, if a person has ADHD and they are not treated with medicine, it doesn't mean for sure they're going to get a, a drug-related problem or they're too big a stoner or they're using alcohol or something like that, but they're in a higher risk group than the kids who are actually treated with medication. And the medication, the other thing that we talk about frequently is the medication for ADHD cures nothing. It's not like you have a strep throat, you take an antibiotic, and it knocks out the infection. It's more like my eyeglasses. I have a problem with my eyes. I can't read typewriter size print without my glasses. Hmm. If I put my glasses on, I can read it as well as anybody can. Take them off, I'm right back where I started. The glasses do not fix my eyes. They just help me see when I've got them on. In the same way, these medications do not make a person get over the ADHD, but what they can do is to help to alleviate the symptoms of ADHD during that part of the day when the medicine works. And the other thing that I find I often have to tell parents about, because not all prescribers are aware of this, even though they should be, and that is when you're dealing with stimulants, the medicines that we use most often for ADHD because we've got the most research about them and they usually do the best job, the amount of medicine you need has nothing to do with how old you are, how much you weigh, or how severe the symptoms are. It's how sensitive is your body to it. And there are some very little kids, not many, but a few preschoolers, where you've got to push the dose up almost to the adult dosing range to be able to give them anything that's going to actually work even though that would be way too much for most other kids that age and size. Because for them, that their bodies are just not that sensitive to it, and you need to push it up. And for them, that works, even though for most other kids, it'd be way too much. And among the adults we see, most of them are taking fairly hefty doses, but there's some of them taller and fatter than I am. They're taking no more than you give a typical five-year-old. Hmm. So go figure. So some of those issues around the adjustment of medicine for ADHD, I think, are really important because a lot of parents get nervous about the medicine and are afraid it's going to cause their son or daughter to become addicted to that medicine or some other one, which we don't very often see at all. You know, the things that people with ADHD get addicted to are not usually their ADD medicine, but more likely alcohol and weed, which are the two things that most other people get addicted to. The medication discussion is a huge one, and I think there are a lot of parents. Rachel and I very much, when we speak to parents, we say it's a familial, you know, it's a family decision. And it's a medical decision, and we're not doctors. Parents, you know, they don't want their children to get a diagnosis and be labeled. They don't want them to get diagnosed because they don't want them to be on medication, no matter what. So they're not even getting a diagnosis. Okay, my response to that sort of thing is to say, which would you prefer? For things to stay the way they are or to take medicine and see if they can be made better. Because usually they would not be in my office if they were happy with the way everything was going. Right. You know, they're struggling with some things. You know, in my mind, it's very much equivalent to having a kid who's got a vision problem and then refusing to give them eyeglasses. It's something that's in the same ballpark. I think it's very important not to oversell the medicine. Because it doesn't work for everybody. Right. You know, for some people, it's huge how much it helps. For others, it's substantial, but not huge. Others, it helps a little, but not that much. And two out of 10, it doesn't do a damn thing. Mm -hmm. But it's very important, at least in this clinic, we always start with a baby-sized dose and then taper it up just a little bit at a time, step-by-step, step, as we're looking for that sweet spot between too little and too much. And it's something that can be stopped at any time. And we do not guarantee that it's going to be helpful. All we can say is your odds are 8 for 10. We will work with you to try to adjust the medication. And if one doesn't work, we'll try another one. And that's the best that we can do. 
But I think to refuse to even try a medicine with a kid is really cheating a kid out of something that might be helpful. You have to say might be because you don't know for sure that it will be. Mm -hmm. There's the added element that because you titrate up, it requires a lot of communication between you and the family. And that requires that the parents' executive functioning skills are able to manage that. Yeah. Well, and particularly if you keep in mind that one of every four kids with ADHD has a parent who's got ADHD, which may or may not be compensated for. Right. Dr. Brown, I know that you just released your new scales, which I think a lot of people are really happy about. And I heard that you're working on a new project. Could you tell us about it? Sure. Well, let me tell you about both of them. First, if you don't mind, I'll make a commercial for the new scales. Yes. I had published in 1996 scales for adolescents and adults to evaluate them for ADHD. And then in 2001, published the Brown ADD scales for kids from 3 to 7 and 8 to 12, along with the other two age groups. But over the last two years, we've been working. My publisher is Pearson. It publishes a lot of whisk and waste IQ tests and a bunch of other materials. And we have redone all of those scales from three years old all the way up to old age and renormed them. We've taken out some items from the old scales and added some new ones and then tested those and took out the ones that didn't work and tried to improve it. And we've got completely new norms from all across the United States so that we now have the new name for them as Brown Executive Function Slash Attention Scales. And if anybody's interested, you can just go to Pearson Clinical online and get information about them. We'll link it in the show notes. The thing that I am most happy about with this is they have an option now where you can administer the scales online or you can push the numbers in while you're talking with the patient. And then you hit a button and in just a matter of two minutes, you've got a very detailed report which explains this model of ADHD, which I talked about earlier which also explains what each of the six clusters is about. So you've got an idea of what the instrument's managing or monitoring. Mm -hmm. And then it shows you a graph where you can see what the parent has rated, what the teacher has rated, and what the student has rated on this and tells you what level of scoring is associated with small, medium, or large likelihood of having ADHD. And so this is something that can be used for screening to see who needs a full evaluation. It can be used as part of a full evaluation. Ah. And it can be used to monitor the effectiveness of treatment. And there are also a couple of pages there. We get every one of the items that's on the scale is listed. And you can see what the parents said, what the kids said, and what the teachers said for each individual item. And it comes out as about a six-page report that I think is going to be very helpful to parents and to teachers and to people who work as educational therapists and psychologists as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. That's something that I'm grateful for you giving me a chance to, to mention it. And uh, I would encourage people to take a look and see what you think. Your second question was about the new project we're working on. And that is my colleague, Ryan Kennedy, and I are currently working on a new book because we have found a lot of the children and adolescents and adults that we see not all of them by any means, but but quite a few, are really smart, but they have a lot of difficulty with social awkwardness, Hmm. that they often find it difficult to know what to say, what to do in situations, and kind of embarrass themselves and other people, and which is something that doesn't have to do with how smart you are. It has to do with people who have a cluster of problems in monitoring their own feelings and monitoring other people's feelings. And it used to be, before they took this diagnosis out of the diagnostic manual back five years ago, which I think was a big mistake, diagnostic manual used to have the diagnosis of Asperger's uh, disorder, Asperger's syndrome, uh, which is a way of talking about people who are quite bright, but they've got some of these difficulties which are associated with the autism spectrum, but they now want to just classify all this as autism spectrum. And I think that was a mistake because it's confusing to people and it puts together people who are having difficulties that, for example, classical autism is usually recognized by 36 months, you know, in a child. And these are children who have serious difficulties in developing language and who have much difficulty in social interaction. 
And some of them eventually do pretty well if they've provided the kind of specialized interventions that they need. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's very different from the people who had warranted a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, which we still use in our clinic to talk with people about it because these are people whose language is, if anything, precocious and who you know do not have the problems in terms of overall IQ. But their social radar is impaired. And it takes a different kind of interaction with those people. So basically what we're doing is we're, we're writing a book which is similar to my previous book, which was called Smart But Stuck, Emotions in Teens and Adults with ADHD. Great book. And this one is going to be talking about people who are smart but have uh, social awkwardness problems. And it'll be mainly a couple of chapters of explaining the theory, how we understand it, and then a large number of case examples because we want to show the variety of ways in which these problems present in children and in teenagers and in adults. So that's an ongoing project. Yeah, I can't wait to read that. When's that coming out? We first have to finish writing it, <laughs> and, and uh-huh. we're we're in the early stages of that. Every time I publish a new book, I swear I'm not going to do another one, but uh, this is <laughs> one that we're really very much invested in right now. We appreciate it. Yeah, don't stop. Don't stop. <laughs> yeah, and if our audience wants to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do it? The best way to do it would be to, to look at our website, which is brownadhdclinic.com, or if they wanted to uh, phone in to the office, it's uh, area code 310-590-7181. And I appreciate your hospitality and you're inviting me to do this today. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. And we hope that our audience has gained something from this. So thank you. I know they will. So thank you, Dr. Brown, for coming. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. Take care now. Smarties, that was an amazing episode. I hope that you got as much out of it as I think Rachel and I got out of it. Because honestly, every time I listen to him talk, I think I learned something new. And we've heard him speak several times, but this felt very special and intimate. And usually it's in a large setting where we can't ask questions or follow up with anecdotes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I love hearing his stories. So I love hearing the sound of his voice. He's just, he's the loveliest man. Like personally, he's just a lovely, he really is modest, humble, sweet man. But I love the sound of his voice. It reminds me of being in college. The tone in his voice is the tone of college professors. I can totally understand. Yeah. So Steph, There was so much to unpack with everything that he was generous enough to share with us. I love that he went through kind of the executive functioning model that he created. He never really said that on the episode, but that's that's something he's created. We talked about it in episode five. What is executive functioning and why everyone's talking about it? That was the model that we used was his model. Yes. We put a disclaimer on that originally, but just to remind everybody. We've absolutely mentioned him on the podcast before. Yeah. He breaks it down in a way that just makes sense. And he uses anecdotes and he tells stories that help us break this apart. The glasses metaphor is something we've talked about before. I love that he obliged me and he told the cookie story. I love that he talked about it. Sorry, not the driving, the driving. I was going to say, and the driving. Yeah. We've talked about that before. We've absolutely talked about that before. I don't know if we realized though, that that was his story or metaphor. I don't know. You know, you hear things and you just integrate them into your own narrative. Yeah. And on the podcast, I've talked about how my struggle was the cars on the right I felt like right right that I was like worried about like judging (laughs) I loved that he spoke about ADHD not being a problem of willpower Mm -hmm. and I actually love that he's kind of opinionated about medication we try to steer clear of that it almost empowered and emboldened me a little bit to maybe have a stronger voice because I definitely have said to parents in the past, if if they can do better as a result of the medication, why wouldn't we give them 
the ADHD glasses. Why wouldn't we give them that extra boost? We would never question glasses. But because it's medication, because it's a diagnosis that's not fully understood and incorrectly interpreted as an issue of willpower, Mm -hmm. we tend to be reluctant to be a part of that conversation. But everything he had to say on it totally resonated with me. Yeah, it did me too. And, you know, at the same time, I'm not going to change the stance of, you know what, for some kids it works and some kids it doesn't. That's exactly right. If you're open to trying. And it's not for everyone. If the parent cannot, you need to really be honest with yourself and your own abilities. If you know that the act of trying different medications, going to the pharmacy, filling the prescription, following up with the doctor or following up with the medicine being effective and you know that's not something that's going to be easy for you as the parent to go through Mm -hmm. that needs to be spoken about you need to be honest with the doctor that you're partnering with I love that he highlighted that you should be partnering with a doctor who's an expert he said it kind of underhandedly he didn't come out and say it but he did say not all physicians understand ADHD medications Mm mm-hmm And I think it's surprising to people that you could give an adult dose to a kid or a kid's dose to an adult because it's different from other meds. It's very different from other meds. Yeah. And we both had in the practice kids that have done tremendously well being on medication. And we've seen others. It's a game changer for some. Yeah. We've seen others that it didn't do anything. Yes. At all. So, you know, it's worth opening the conversation to see if that could be an option if you're open. For the kids who it's a game changer for, they literally have the experience of, I didn't know what other people were experiencing. They didn't even know the experience of other people and what their brain could feel like and how a typical non-ADHD brain feels like. And then I feel sad for the kids who the meds aren't going to work for Mm -hmm. because they're never going to have that experience of knowing the difference because if you can know what it feels like you can work and do things and put in strategies and systems that move in the direction of that yeah and honor that yeah and like I've talked about before I know of a seven-year-old boy who started on medication and he was able to go to summer camp and he loved it and that would not have been a possibility for him prior to the meds absolutely not And it's been a game changer in his life. So, yeah, he's young, but, you know, it was one of those things where he couldn't function in a situation with a lot of other kids. He has an all-day aid, and he couldn't just go have fun. And he was able to just go have fun with other kids for the first time in his life. And he just, you know, grew so much just from that one experience over the summer. It was tremendous. So... If it's an option, think about it. Yeah. I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but we've definitely seen amazing things come from it. So I think another, you know, important takeaway that I need to remember sometimes when I'm talking to parents or children is being able to say that memory is holding on to one thing while doing something else. That is a great way to just say it in one sentence, explain working memory, because I think I've explained it. and It's been a lot more sentences. So yeah. I think that that's one thing that I'm definitely taking away is that's a very easy self-explanatory sentence. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that ADHD is not something that has to do with just your willpower, that it's really a disorder of motivation. He said that exactly. And yeah, I mean... We talk about this in terms of like, we really simplify this on the podcast. We talk about it in terms of students avoiding tasks that they're not good at, avoiding the homework that feels difficult for them. Mm-hmm. And it's the larger reminder that if they could control it, don't you think they would? Yeah. Right. And if it's the same principle, if a student found an assignment easy, they would do it. Because at the end of the day, students want to please and learners want to please their parents and their teachers and their grownups. And this is how we define them. Yeah. And we talk about it in episode 28, motivating the unmotivated. So we'll we'll link a lot of this stuff that we're talking about today. We're going to link episode five in the show notes and we'll executive functioning and why everyone is talking about it in episode 28, which is motivating the unmotivated. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I, I'm embarrassed <laughs> 
about, but not that much. He knew what Spanx was. Yeah. Well, he's got a daughter. <laughs> he's got a daughter, and he's a man of the world. Who I've met. She's lovely. He is a man of the world, right? His head isn't in the sand. So, um, but that was a question I never thought I'd asked Dr. Brown <laughs> if he knew what Spanx was. Um, because that story, and I think I've spoken about it on the podcast before as well. You have, yeah. About Sarah Blakely's father normalizing failure Mm -hmm. is critical for high achieving parents to understand and if they can embrace it embrace as well yeah because our kids are failing a lot all day whether they have adhd or not there is no one braver than a three-year-old going down the slide for the first time yeah right like our kids are so naturally brave and the worst thing I, I used to say when or I do say when my kids, my, my friend's kids are learning to walk, there's a reason they're close to the ground. They're little when they learn to walk that you can't fall that far mm-hmm. when you're little. Right. Mm-hmm. And we forget that. Yeah. We forget that. And we treat not turning in a homework assignment or not preparing for a test. And, and yes, it's a part of a bigger issue, but we treat it as if they're falling from a thousand feet up in the air. And in reality, they're they're not. It's not going to make a difference to their life's happiness. They're going to walk down the aisle whether or not that homework assignment in sixth grade got turned in. Yeah. I think that it's important to note that, that like he said, ADHD diagnosis or not, this is something we all struggle with in some way or another. Yes. So it's important to note that even if your child is undiagnosed or definitely not ADHD, that there are going to be times that they're struggling with this just like you are. And that's okay. Yeah. So, and the last thing I think that we both take away is licking the words, not chewing. Oh, there you go for studying. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> when you said, I was like, <laughs> yeah, that when you're studying, when you can study in a group or you're doing something active, like we talk about in making a study plan in episode four is if you're just looking at a book, you're licking the words, you're not actually chewing them. You got to chew. You got to chew. Yeah. (laughs) You got to chew. Smarties, (laughs) we can't wait to hear from you. And we think there's going to be a lot of buzz about this episode, or maybe we're just buzzed about this episode. I'm not sure. It's okay. Whatever. (laughs) This one was a special one for us because it was the realization of a hopeful list that we had created when we first started out. Right. Mm -hmm. You never know when you start a project guys and dream big because this felt huge for us. So we're excited that we got to learn alongside with all of you today. And Steph, anything you want to add? No, thanks for joining us. Have a great week, Smarties. Have a great week.